0: Well, good afternoon and welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian. I am your co host, filling in for Dave Robson. This is a weekday uh, Bible Answer program. We broadcast here from our location in Tucson, Arizona, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And of course, you can uh, chime in and follow along with us on multiple social media platforms, such as Facebook. Go to CCF Tucson. That's our handle on our Facebook page. We live stream to here. Also, you can go to YouTube. And if you happen to uh, chime in on some of these social media platforms as we're doing this program please subscribe and hit the notification bell like share comment ask a question uh, our handle on youtube is a reason for hope 546. you can also follow our senior pastor on twitter uh, pastor scott richards he's here usually on uh, mondays wednesdays and fridays doing the program <clears throat> we also have a. Wednesday night service, we're currently going through the book of Ezekiel, and on Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Acts. We go verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. Uh, Scott Richards can be followed at ScottR4H. Some humorous and serious uh, tweets from time to time, and of course, if you have a question for our program, A Reason for Hope, you can uh, tweet a question to Scott, and uh, we'll get to it here on the program. We also live stream this broadcast and all our services to our website. That's calvarychristianfellowship.com. And if you click on the Watch Live tab, you can actually uh, engage with us. You can uh, leave comments, ask questions during uh, this program. And we also have a Bible app. Uh, You can actually look up Scripture. It's a full digital Bible. Also, all our event calendars, uh, prayer groups, chat groups as well as our archives of sermons, past messages, and this program can all be watched there. Just uh, search for CCF Tucson in either the Apple or Google I or the Google Apple uh, Google Play Store. We also live stream our services to Amazon and Roku. If you have a Fire Stick or a Roku, you can watch there. Now, if you want to ask a question but you don't necessarily want to be on a social media platform, maybe more personal or anonymous, you can do so by just emailing us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. In studio with me today, as every Tuesday and Thursday, Pastor Sean Richards, Peter Martin, two pastors here at Calvary Christian, and uh, two very, very brilliant, inspiring, and have uh, been life-changing individuals for me. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here today.
1: Good to be here. Yeah.
0: Good, good, good. Before we get to your questions and we Start off with our, I guess Thursdays is a book recommendation day?
2: <clears throat> yep, that is the routine.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, oh, by the way, did you have to scoop any snow off your car this morning?
1: <laughs> Probably should have before I started driving, but no, I didn't.
0: <laughs> I, I did. I get I got to, and I even made a little snowball, and Cal got to eat it in the car before his mom and the kids went to <laughs> her uh, women's Bible studies, as she does every Thursday. But, uh, yeah, we had quite a bit. Actually, some of my trees were like, oh, no, I can't handle this. <laughs> so that was kind of a, not something we get to see here in southern Arizona very often is snow-covered morning. Well, but, that's
2: uh, a, that's another tricky thing because our uh, piping system isn't built for this either, so hopefully we won't have any breakages. Those who live in colder climates know this. You have to dig down deep, otherwise stuff backs up.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I have always made sure that I've kept my exposed pipes you know, padded because even if it gets cold, not snow cold, but cold, or freezing cold anyway, you can burst the pipe, but yeah, yeah, it's very important here. Uh, Would one of you care to pray for today before we take questions? Yeah, Happy to. Great, thanks, Sean.
2: Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We don't have anything to share but you, and that's enough. So for the sake of your people, for the glory of your name, and most importantly, the edification of your people, we want to ask that you would be the one to make this program worthwhile. Let what's shared today be your word. Let the ones who are ministered today be your people. And even those who perhaps don't know you, let them be given ears to hear your voice and gain a taste for it as you continue to reach out to them more and more. Equip Peter and I with those words and that heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. Cool.
1: Yeah, so what so, do you got for us, Peter? So uh, as you said, Adrian, on Thursdays, me and Sean have been doing a, a newer kind of a study where we're just going through books that have impacted us, books that we think are worth a read, uh, checking out and all that. Uh, today I'm gonna produce two books and it's gonna be a weirder one because both of them are short and both of them I can't fully recommend. So I don't know if I'd want you to read it but both of them have really really insightful points. So uh, the first one's called Addicted to Mediocrity by Frank Schaefer. and just so you know he wrote this book in the early 80s and those of you guys who know Frank Schaefer, son of Francis Schaefer. He went a little off the deep end in the last couple decades. Uh, he wrote this before he went off the deep end, so it is it is uh, a good book. My only critique of it uh, and reason why I w- might not wholeheartedly endorse it is it kind of feels like you're being lectured at by a much older man, <laughs> and so it's uh, it's it, it is what it is. You know, if, if that's your kind of thing and you want to read it, go for it. But it has a really really important point to it that we're going to discuss. And then the second book is called Art and Faith, A Theology of Making by Makoto Fujimura. Now, Makoto Fujimura is a famous Japanese artist that lives out in New York, and he is actually very good and talented. You could look up his stuff on his website. I can't wholeheartedly endorse this one either because he has some interesting theology, nothing uh, heretical, but... Interesting. <laughs> i put mean it that way. It's just interesting theology.
2: You note uh, the whole prosperity thing tends to weasel its way into most American Western teachers, and you have to be sensitive to that. A Zen culture, likewise, you have to be sensitive to where they're coming from, too.
1: Right, absolutely. So uh, let, let's begin with Addicted to Mediocrity. Now, now the reason why I chose these two is because both of them are attempting to address the problem of the arts and Christian community. So, an Addicted to Mediocrity, very, very short book. Uh, it it's essentially like a maybe a half hour read, and then the last part of it is just him answering questions. So uh, very, very short read, and it just has one central point. His point is that arts and Christianity have become incredibly mediocre, and Christians seem to be psyched about that. That's kind of his uh, main point. That's why he calls it addicted to mediocrity. And he takes a look at the Christian music industry, the Christian uh, uh, the Christian movie industry, and the Christian TV, industry, and he shows how all of our standards of the arts have really plummeted within Christianity in the last hundred years. He also points out that this didn't always, uh, it wasn't always the case. Christians used to lead in the arts. So when you think about guys like Johann Sebastian Bach, when you think about Mozart, Beethoven, Chopin, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, right? all these guys had something in common. They were all Christians. Uh, They were all pretty devout Christians, actually, and they saw their art form as being something that glorified God in a very direct manner. Now, these are some leading artists in the world. They're usually listed as some of the best artists to have ever lived, and all of them were Christians. Now, you could say what you want about the Christian uh, entertainment conglomerate at this point in our history, but one thing that you can't say is that it is producing the highest art in the world. Uh, it's just not. Now, you could say, I like the messages that are being produced by Pure flicks and things like that. Um, I like the, uh, it, it it invigorates me. It makes me feel good about myself. It gets me more in touch with my faith. Great. But what you can't say is that it is considered high art, that that the world actually looks upon it and says, this is really, really amazing, and it's drawing people more to God. Now, he gives a couple reasons as to why this decline happened. He gives uh, just two So it's very easy to go through and I'll go through them with you. But before I do that, I want to read a quote. He actually quotes this in his book and it's from a guy named Giorgio Vasari in a book he wrote called The Lives of the Artists. And he was actually in the Renaissance period writing about the Renaissance artists. And he says this, design, however, is at the foundation of both of these arts or rather the animating principle of all creative processes. And surely design existed in absolute perfection before the creation when Almighty God, having made the vast expanse of the universe and adorned the heavens with His shining lights, directed His creative intellect further to create air and the solid earth. And then, in the act of creating man, He fashioned the first forms of painting and sculpture in the sublime grace of created things. Now just take a step back and think about this for a second. Notice how innately Christian that quote is. This is a guy writing about the high arts in the middle of the Renaissance period. Would you read anything from someone writing about the high arts today you know, and expect to get something good, something that points you to God? Absolutely not. Hopefully soon. Right, hopefully soon. But yeah, it, it, it's definitely taken a sharp decline. Now, what is it that has caused the arts and Christianity to fall apart? He gives brief answers because, again, this is a very short book, so I'm going to actually elaborate on the points that he makes. The first one is the, the effect of Darwin and utilitarianism. So when Darwin uh, crafted his theory of evolution, essentially he had to make a godless universe, and therefore everything that exists has to have a direct utility. Why do we have thumbs? Why do we have hands? Why are our eyes... Uh, Our pupils' particular colors? Why are there a variety of hair colors, right? He had to give some sort of a utility reason for all of these things that everyone's like, God is a creative God. And of course, he's going to make mankind with variations and things like that. Just like every artist is going to make all of their crafts slightly different. They don't like art. If you ever talk to an artist, they don't like repeating themselves. They don't like doing making the same thing over and over again. They're not Ikea. They're not an assembly line. (laughs) They are inspired. They want to create new and innovative things, right? Don't I know it. Yeah, (laughs) and so when God is creating, it makes sense that every snowflake is different, right? That every human being looks slightly different, that there's all these variations and all these different kinds of beauty that flood the creation, right? So for years, Christians had an answer to why all these variations existed. But once Darwin comes along, those answers don't work anymore. He doesn't believe in a creator. Uh, And because he doesn't believe in an intelligent design, he has to believe that every variation that we see, it's perceived as beautiful or good, but it's really not. It's just, it has some sort of a fundamental purpose. Uh, This is what Richard Dawkins also parrots, uh, more of a contemporary writer and atheist. And he says that uh, creation has a very striking appearance of creative intent, but it's just not, right? It's, uh, It's just chance it's just it just so happened to be this way and everything that exists it's because it has some sort of utility now
2: obviously there are exceptions when say for example you ever get the chance to go whale watching it's uh unnerving if you have thastalophobia but what's interesting about it is you ask some of the tour guides at least some of the more honest ones why are they singing Hmm. Some might say, "Oh, it's to attract mates," but that's been proven as false. They don't really seem interested in it, as far as the mating season goes. Yeah. Others say, "Oh, it's to like ward off predators. It frightens, uh, you know, others from their calves and so forth." That's been also verified as false. <laughs> Ultimately, uh, even a Darwinist uh, tour guide that we were listening to said, I, "They just like it." There's no real explanation for it. Now a Christian obviously wouldn't say the God of the gaps. They'd say all creation sings the glory of God. There is an aspect to God just doing something because it's beautiful because he's beautiful. It's reflective of his nature. But if on the other hand you come from a Darwinistic, a uh, naturalistic worldview, there has to be some explanation. And Scientists are asking this doesn't make sense. Why do they sing? And the whales just keep going (laughs)
1: So whale singing fits very nicely into our worldview, doesn't fit so neatly into the evolutionistic worldview. Now, what he points out is that this would predictably have an effect on the arts, because what's the utility of the arts? The whole point of aesthetics is that you're doing something not for the utility, but because it's aesthetically pleasing, right? It's something that that just benefits your senses, something that brings pleasure and goodness, and as Christians, we believe the reason why it brings pleasure and goodness is because it points to the ultimate pleasure, goodness, and beautiful being, namely the being of God. That's our explanation. But as Darwinian evolution started to impact Western culture, there was a very unique reason as to why it especially affected the Christian, uh, the Christian culture. Because you'd say, well, Hollywood's super secular, so why wouldn't they see the arts as being purely utility? Well, I got some bad news for you. If you've watched anything from Hollywood lately, you may have noticed a decline in quality in their art form. Why? Because they are starting to believe more and more inside of their uh, utilitarian worldview. And what that means is that art has to have a utility. Well, what's the utility of art? To share or to disseminate your message. And once message becomes the primary purpose of why you're creating art, it loses its aesthetic quality. It becomes cheap it becomes kitsch, it becomes imitative, and it simply is there to preach a message at you. It's not there to be aesthetically pleasing, it's not there to be beautiful, it's just there to give you some sort of a message, which is exactly what happened to Christian media. It stopped being something where Christians were creating something simply because it's beautiful, and it started becoming something where Christians were creating only to share the gospel, right? If you were gonna sing a song, it better have Christian lyrics. If you're going to make a movie, it better have a testimony in it. It better speak of God. It better be very, very directly evangelistic. Otherwise, that's secular. That's not really what we do. It doesn't have a utility, and so therefore it's not good. Now, the reason why that really resonated with Christians is because Christianity from its inception has been heavily influenced by Plato. So the early Christian fathers, a lot of them were Greek philosophers before they were converted to Christianity. And Plato... If you ever read any of his works, didn't really like the arts too much. Um, in his most famous book, The Republic, he actually has whole sections where he talks about how the arts need to be greatly restricted, how the, basically like totalitarian, fascistic type of uh, restrictions and book burnings is what he was pr- uh, proposing. And then he also says, well, the reason why is because art is just imitative. You know, the guy who makes a couch, at least he's making a couch. The guy who paints a couch is just painting a couch. <laughs> you can't use the, it for the anything. Ron Swanson scenario. I don't
2: know why someone would paint a picture of nature
1: when they could just go out and stand in it. <laughs> That's right. And so Christians got this really weird idea early on that beauty in creation is good to look at and it's good to glorify God in, but beauty in the arts is something that is somehow not Christian. It's something that brings you away from godliness. It's something that brings you away from spirituality. It immerses you in the world and it alienates you from the being of God. What Christians realized in the Renaissance period is actually, it's not the case. If God is the source of all beauty, then we find God in beauty and the transcendent. And therefore when I'm making an artistic work, my intent in doing it is to make something beautiful because if it's beautiful and it's good, it will naturally point to God. I don't have to beat people over the head with my worldview. I don't have to inseminate some sort of a message. I just have to present my worldview to the world through my artistic format and and medium, and people will appreciate it and be led to God. Now, if you're a Christian, the way that's how artists create art is they actually are creating from what they see and what they experience in the world. So therefore, if you are a Christian, it will naturally come out in your art but you don't have to intentionally make that the purpose right and we've talked about Tolkien in our uh in this book study before in his books the Lord of the Rings and why Christians criticized him for doing that and they were like you know you got to make something like overtly Christian man you know where's God in the Lord of the Rings and uh, Tolkien would say well you know there's God in Lord of the Rings yeah Everybody more in the similarian him. but you know like but he's there but it's not intended primarily to be evangelistic. It's not intended to beat you over the head with the Christian doctrine, it's there to be good, it's there to be beautiful, and that will bring people to God in his view of the world. And that leads to the second problem they see is that there is a dis, uh, distinction between the secular and the religious. Now when this started to happen, uh, we're actually talking about it on our Tuesdays where we're going through kind of the descent of Western civilization through the great thinkers uh, great as in their influence, not their quality of writing. But we've been we're talking about how these secularistic authors began to infect Christianity with this idea of you guys are being intolerant. You're being intolerant to us. you know, we're this poor little minority. We're being victimized by this Christian, these Christian institutions that are beating us over their head with their worldview. It's not fair. There needs to be separation of church and state. You don't legislate morality towards us. You don't educate our kids with a Christian worldview. You don't produce art that that speaks of God and the glory of God. Just let's make everything neutral. Let's make everything neutral. And Christians started to listen to that. And so this idea, this concept of the secular versus the religious started to really permeate our culture. Now, it did begin uh, earlier than the 1900s. It did begin in the 1800s, maybe even the 1700s. But that's still something that is relatively close at hand. Christians have always believed throughout church history that our worldview is the best worldview. And that even if you don't believe in Christianity, If if your kids are being brought up in a Christian country, they're going to be better off than being brought up in a pagan country. (laughs) That's always been the belief of Christians, right? You're gonna be better off, even if you don't believe what we're saying. If our morality is dictating the legislation, if our morality is dictating the education, the world's gonna be a better place because God is real and therefore his word is going to be effective in training people whether they believe it's true or not. That was the view of most Christians. But through the 1800s, Christians were convinced of, no, we need neutrality. We need separation of church and state. Forget the fact that they don't have the same courtesy for us, right? but we bought into it, right? Christians bought into it and said, yes, let's create neutral spaces and uh, let's leave religion out of it. And then immediately, the atheists took over all these institutions and started filling them with propaganda. And he does say in his book, he says a ideology that neglects the arts is an ideology that has lost the power to affect culture. Now remember, he's writing this in the 1980s. In the 1980s, America was starting a decline, (laughs) had taken a pretty big hit from the 60s and the 70s, but it was far more Christian than it is today. And he was saying Christians, even though we're the majority, we've become the silent majority. We're not able to impact the culture on massive levels because we've neglected the arts. We've neglected the arts. And that's really unfortunate. Anything you want to add to that?
0: Well, I can certainly resonate with <clears throat> the sentiment. When I became an artist, an illusionist, yeah. I was not a Christian.
1: Yeah.
0: For the first 10 years of my, or not quite that long, but pretty close, mm. um, I, it was all about the art, about standing on stage and portraying a character, this this character called the magician or an illusionist, mm. uh, <clears throat> orchestrating the music with the movements and the theme and creating a thematic act, and it was all about the beauty of it. I, I, It would make my soul rise. I was inspired by the work that I was doing. Mm. <clears throat> when I became a Christian, I thought, great, I want to honor God with this art. Mm. And I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't be a magician and a Christian, maybe that's wrong. And I quickly learned that that was not an, that was not a correct line of thinking. Yeah. I started touring with the Andre Cole program, uh, one of the largest traveling illusion shows in the country for many years. We had a huge production, large team, five tons of equipment. I was the technical director, so I did all the lights and sound, and we were in a new theater every night, so I was always in a new catwalk, you know, repointing lights, learning new light boards, and of course, we had musicians in the show, so I was the sound engineer, even though I was kind of thrown into it. (laughs) uh, I had a lot to learn, but I I continued to develop an appreciation for the art form, Mm. and then when I realized that I had a love, and even the gift for evangelism, Mm -hmm. I quickly began to utilize, just as Andre Cole did, this art as a means to communicate the message. Then there came this transition into full-time ministry where I began to run in Christian circles a lot more as far as art was concerned. Mm -hmm. And I attended a convention. I was invited to be a keynote performer Mm -hmm. and a speaker. So I went to this convention called the Fellowship of Christian Magicians which encompassed all art forms. There, mm. there was balloon people, <laughs> storytellers, clowns, yeah. jugglers. So, Magicians was just how it started, but it grew to everything that a, a children's Sunday school teacher would want to learn to entertain kids on a Sunday morning. And so, I did my act, and I got criticized. Because hmm. I did my act that I actually won the internationals with. You're too good. In, in Las yeah. Vegas, and that's exactly the criticism yeah. I got. They said, the, sh- the act was too good, yeah. and there was no spiritual message. That's right. Well, I said, well, I was there to do my Manip Act that I competed with when I won the internationals in Vegas. It's a silent act. Mm. It's seven minutes to music with birds and a parrot and fire and the and, and tuxedo tail. not very tails. friendly,
2: if you don't mind me saying.
0: <laughs> he can be nice. <laughs> He's got to get to know him. But the, the point of it all is, is that... Mm they saw something that I was using to compete on the highest levels in the world. Right. And they saw it as bad because we were in a Christian context. So I thought, okay, well, when I did my lecture, I was lecturing on how to fulfill the great commission Mm. and what it means to truly do church planting and evangelism in the way that I was doing across the globe. And I said, and it was a huge crowd of people, artists, you know, we're here as a ministry. You know, the Fellowship of Christian Magicians is all about using art for ministry. So I said, how many of you are called to do evangelism? Mm. And in a room of several hundred people, one person raised their hand. Mm. And the criticism was is that every act that you do in your show has to have a spiritual point or implication. Right Now, in my show, it's all entertainment. Right. It's 90% of the show is all entertainment to draw a crowd, build rapport, tell stories, share my life story. And only for 15 minutes am I actually talking about God, his purpose for creating humanity, our need for a savior, the sinfulness of humanity, the the evidences for the death, burial, and resurrection, and uh, a call to repentance and what faith means. Mm. And that's all the time I can afford because I've asked my audience to stay there for the show and now I'm asking using that platform to have developed hopefully enough credibility to stay and it works. It's a really good tool. Mm. But people would criticize my show saying, well, yeah, but none of your performance has a message behind it. It's like all this secular magic. Mm. And so I got to see firsthand that that mentality. But what's even more uh, disturbing, I guess, or not disturbing but disappointing in myself is that I began to see my own uh, detraction from wanting to be an artist. Mm. I started to experience Well, I don't want to do as many secular shows. I just want to share the gospel. My heart for evangelism was greater than my love for the art, Mm. but I allowed that to be sort of like a spiritual high horse at the neglect of the art to the point where I stopped trying to invent new things, stopped trying to create new art. And I was just kind of getting by with what I had already created when I was loving the art. Mm. And to my own shame, I guess you could say, I have failed as an artist While excelling as an evangelist Hmm. and it's a it's a real unfortunate thing because the thing that Andre Cole always said is Christians should never settle for mediocrity right God he would say gave us his very best and the very least that we could do as believers in every aspect of our lives everything we do is give him our best and as my apologetics and Christian worldview professor said there is nothing secular non-christian or even evil that cannot be looked at thought about christianly right and that's the huge problem of this secularization pluralization and privatization of faith yeah. in the western
1: world no absolutely and he points that out that many artists because that because what artists love to do and this is what drives them is they love to share what they have with people right that's that's like i think god has gifted them uniquely with that desire i mean we all like to share what we do with people but artists especially, they have a view of the world and what's really magic, forget the pun, but what's really magical about what they can do is we all have ideas in our head, right? Everyone's had like an idea of like, man, that would like be cool if like a movie did this and you have the scene in your head. The difference between an artist and you is that artist could actually make that scene be real to people. You can't, right? That's why you're not an artist, right? But an artist could actually take what's in their head and they could communicate it across the board to somebody else and that they could receive it. So what he says is, if you're in a situation where a church is praising mediocrity, right? They're they're finding the most mediocre people, and they're like, oh yes, but the the message in it is so pure and it's so good and it's not detracting from God, you know. And I've heard Christians say that, like, well, when it's too good, it detracts from God, mm. you know, like it, it 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 ignores God. And if if that's what you're doing, then you're doing one of two things. You're either neutering your artist, where they're not going to excel at their art or they're gonna leave the church in their art form. Mm. And if you don't think that Hollywood's a machine that won't suck people's faith out of them, you just don't know Hollywood, right? A lot of well-meaning Christians have gone into Hollywood hoping to be evangelists inside of that culture and become subsumed by it. So if the church doesn't have a mode to encourage and support artists and to say, we're gonna give you a place to expand your artistry, we're gonna encourage you in your artistry, and if you use that as a platform for evangelism, all the better. But we want you to excel because, like you yeah. said, God is an excellent God. He's mm-hmm. a beautiful God. I, I heard someone put it this, to me this way: They said, "Do you think that Jesus made shoddy furniture <laughs> as a carpenter? Do you think he was making like IKEA models and <laughs> giving you people stick like to preaching?" Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> yeah people are criticizing. It's like no, when when he went home to Nazareth, the thing that actually made people be like, he cannot be the Messiah was the fact that he was just a carpenter. They're like this is the carpenter's son, which gives us the idea that he was a good carpenter, but they're like come on man, stay in your lane, Jesus. You know you're going to appreciate us now. Like you're a carpenter, just stay there and Jesus is like no, I'm kind of the son of God and and he's trying to And get I still love him. my dining table by the way, right?
0: but <laughs> I mean it's flawless, and,
1: buddy. <laughs>
0: and not just the Christian community giving a place for artists to excel in their art forms, but to do it in such a manner that you're not kind of re-replicating the tone-deaf monkeys. Mm. And what I mean by that is that I've 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 spoken in hundreds of churches across the globe, experienced so many different types of services, different ways of doing worship in dozens of different denominations, mm. some historic, some cutting edge. So I've seen the, the gambit of church experience. Mm. And when I say tone-deaf monkeys, it's that, well, we want everyone to have a chance to Practice their singing because some people love to sing, but some of them are horrible at it. Mm. And we celebrate it just because, well, because it's Christian, their heart is pure. We're going to (laughs) celebrate this rather than saying, well, you know, I mean, the Israelites, God said, get all the best musicians together, not just anyone who loves to play a flute, people who are actually good at it, and bring them to uh, lead the worship for the community.
1: And what's weird, I'm reading another book right now by a guy named Umberto Eco, and he's going over the uh, aesthetics of Thomas Aquinas, which I know it's mouthful and I don't have time to get into that. But one of the things that he brings up is what's so interesting is that the Christians throughout the age have actually been masters at one particular art form, rhetoric. Right? Christians have always excelled at rhetoric. And he says the irony is, is that they use one art form, namely rhetoric, to criticize other art forms. And he, and he shows how Christians are like yelling at the arts and they're saying how stupid it is. But like, he's like, look at the eloquence of their speech. Like this is really well written. It's like, this is not something that he just typed out and he's just angry and he's just like, I don't want to detract from the glory of God. This is someone who thought out their speech. They made it artsy. They actually added poetic imagery in it in order to drive their point home, right? It's really well thought out. He's like, why are we so for the artistry of one of one part and not for others? So it's mm-hmm. like in Christian circles, the artistry of rhetoric is highly revered right there we do strive for excellency in preaching and evangelism right being qualified competent public speakers that can move crowds and help people understand the message of the gospel in a clear concise way that is something that christians really do emphasize we train people up to but that's the only art form that we're really trying to excel at and his point is why aren't we trying to excel at all art forms mm-hmm. and thomas aquinas was a really interesting guy because he was not only a theologian he also was a musician. Most people don't know that about him. And He was a really good musician. Mm. So when I would say that Christians have excelled in the music industry, it's
0: one of the one of the few areas that that you really can say there is the Christian version mm. of the music industry.
1: So I'm going to push back a little. Okay. <laughs> so I, I think that maybe Christians, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Yeah, I think I'm not Christians a <laughs> have, and this is what I meant about Kitsch. So what Kitsch is is it's a reliance on familiarity in order to attract attention. So Disney is a great great example of that, right? Disney hasn't had an original idea in very long. Uh, They just keep producing sequels and remakes, and it's just, it's relying upon the familiarity and the nostalgia of the audience in order to produce art in a a machine, essentially. The Christian music industry has become very kitschy. Uh, In its inception, it was basically just making mimicry of the art of the secular world. They were just making alternatives and some of them were kind of at the level of the secular artists. Some of them were a lot worse. Uh, there have only been a couple of genres of Christian music where I think that the artists are so good that they are recognized as really talented artists outside the Christian community. Uh, I would say Lauren Daigle is one. I would say NF is another. And Christian metal, for whatever reason, has always been really good. You know, For people <laughs> who like metal, uh, I remember even talking to my buddy in the Marines, we loved metal. And even my friends in the Marine Corps are like, dude, I love Christian metal. You know, they would listen to O Sleeper and Norma Jean, right? These these Christian metal bands that actually did have lyrics in them that were Christian. And they were very upfront about their mm-hmm. faith. And even, uh, you know, more hardcore bands like P.O.D. Uh, they've been recognized as being very good. But the contemporary Christian machine is just kind of putting out music that's very, uh, it's very disposable. It, it's just, like I said, it's either mimicking what's popular on the radio but it's not pushing any boundaries, it's not growing us. And what art is supposed to do is it's supposed mm-hmm. to be honest, right? So when I read the Psalms in the Bible, it's like they, they really do go over every facet of human experience, right? Mm-hmm. There are Psalms that are depressing, and there are Psalms that are anxious, and there are Psalms that are angry, and there are Psalms that are fearful and lonely. But when you listen to Christian music, you really only have one emo- emotion represented, and that's joy and praise usually only four chords. And usually only four chords. <laughs> and again, that's not to say that there aren't talented Christian musicians. It's just to say that the machine, and that's why we're laughing, is that it, it's unfortunate because a lot of these really talented Christian musicians have been hemmed in by this idea of like, well, you know, you got to make music that people could play at their churches. Mm-hmm. So if you're like too excellent, if you're too good, then people can't play that and they can't worship God to your music. And so Christians feel like, oh, okay, I have to kind of dumb down my talent. And it's like Bach didn't think that way right? Try to play, right? (laughs) You know, any piano, try to play a piece from Bach and tell me that it's easy or simple, right? He didn't try to dumb down his pieces. But once again, I'm glorifying God through the excellency of my art form. That was the idea. Mm. And people criticized him. They're like, play the Christian hymns, stick to the simple chords. And weren't a
0: lot of the Christian hymns from like the 1800s, 1700s, the ones that we have in our hymnals, Mm -hmm. our older hymnals, were just bar songs mm-hmm. that were re-lyricized to fit a Christian message. They would take the tune yeah. and then just change the lyrics. And we still kind of do that
1: by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and we, still kind of do that. Uh, we just uh, got to pay copyright fines and stuff.
0: Now. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We
1: have questions accumulating. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay. Did you want to going show back, what, what did you want to define what Kitsy is? Yeah, uh, yeah. We'll that? actually we'll do the next book next week. Okay. Yeah, perfect. so we'll just finish up. But yeah, uh, Keep that in mind, the arts, the arts and Christianity. And, and the, the book, book again, you, is... Is, <laughs> is uh, Addicted to Mediocrity by Frank Schaefer. Frank Schaefer. Don't read and anything it, yeah. that he yeah. wrote yeah. recently. <laughs> <Yeah, but, laughs> yeah. That is a little something. But yeah. Let yeah, us know that
0: uh, uh, Tia wants to know... Um, a few things. Yeah, yeah, it's quite, quite an interesting dialogue. The first part of uh, the question here is um, when you share with someone who... How do you share your faith with someone who believes in Jesus, but maybe or God, but not the uniqueness of Christianity, or that Christianity is one way, or that maybe Jesus was just a demigod, or some offshoot. They believe in the name of Jesus, and they say, or they'll say, I believe in God. Yeah. <clears throat> how do you witness to someone who believes in a different Jesus? Yeah, a deist. And they just consider
2: Jesus one of many ways to understanding the unknowable.
0: Yeah. So how do you share your faith with someone who is basically saying, I agree with you, just not everything. How do, you, how do you cross that bridge with that person?
1: Yeah, this might be one of the most difficult categories of people to evangelize to. Um, I, I've said before that I actually kind of like evangelizing to Jehovah's Witness or even Muslims because they're so clear about the differences between our faith and theirs, right? So they will never, ever, ever say like, yeah, we basically believe the same thing. Right. If, you're, if you're talking to a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness that said that, they are a bad Muslim and a bad Jehovah's Witness. Right. Mormons uh, might yeah. play that card, but not. <laughs> Mormons that. will definitely play that card, but and that's uh, I'm going to bring up Mormons in a second. That's what makes them so difficult to evangelize to is because they will agree with what you're saying, they will just disagree with the premise or the implications. And so you actually, if you're going to dialogue with someone that has that kind of very vague or. Uh, in discerning view of who Christ is and what he's sent to do in our lives, you have to, first of all, be very competent in understanding what does distinguish Jesus from other faiths, what's unique about him. And you need to be able to communicate that to someone and say, there is a narrowness to the message of Christ. It's not something that's broad or universal. It is something that is very narrow. And so you would have to be able to know and be able to share the quotes from Jesus that would say, Narrow is the way, uh, straight is the path that leads to salvation, broad is the way, and wide is the path that leads to destruction. You need to be able to, to quote off the, the passage where he says, do not think I came to bring peace, but a sword, right? To divide father against son and mother against daughter, right? To, to set a house at odds with one another, right? You, you'd have to explain what is it that Jesus did. Jesus died on a cross for our sins. If there were many ways to God, Jesus wasted his time, right? And this is what Paul says in Galatians 2. If we could have had salvation through our moral works, then Jesus died for no reason, right? It's it's in vain that he died. The only reason why Jesus's death matters is that his death is salvific. It's something that could actually forgive us and cleanse us of our impurities, and it's only by that faith that we have relationships with him. Now with a Mormon it becomes even more tricky because you are talking to someone who has subsumed all that language. They'll say like, oh yeah, I totally believe that Jesus died for my sins. Yep, I believe that we're saved by grace through faith. Yep, I believe that we're going to heaven simply by believing in God. And you gotta realize, they're saying what you're saying. They just don't mean what you mean, right? They're, they're using all the same words as you. They've just changed the definition. So with a Mormon, you have to be even more savvy. Mm-hmm. And you have to actually, one uh, apologist put it this way. He says, you got to convert them to Mormonism before you can convert them to Christianity. Exactly. Right? You got to actually show them what their doctrines are teaching before then you mm-hmm. can show them the difference. Uh, but it is some of the more difficult people to share with. It's uh, really tough. And especially in our our world. I was talking to my friend yesterday, and he's a local pastor, and he's really into apologetics and evangelism. And he says, this is the most difficult, in my opinion, he's like, what the world has become in the last couple of years has been the most difficult evangelism I've had to face. Because he's like, when you're talking to someone, and there's a lot of heat and a lot of passion, like, you're wrong, you're terrible, right? And they're going at you. He's like, there's something to dialogue about. But when you have someone say, well, this is your truth, and you know that's cool, and you just think that way. And even if you try to show them, like, no, there's objective truth. They're like, that's just what you think. And you know, I just think differently, right? And he's yeah. like, where do you go from there? You just got to be like, oh, okay, you know, I guess you think that mm-hmm. way, and I. But I believe in like, objective truth. But it it makes it really tough to talk to someone like, like
0: that. It's like chasing Jello around a bowl with a fork. Yeah, it's very
1: very challenging.
0: We used to deal with that a lot more uh, now, but back in the early 90 or mid 90s or mid-90s, you had postmodernism, yeah. And so the idea was is that, oh, you can't know truth, and there's no way to know truth. and Well, that's just your belief. Yeah. And there was no way to really get through. And so it was always a challenge. But defining your terms is really key. Yeah. And helping a person <clears throat> come to a place where they can understand and develop a common ground with them is always a good place to start. And then pointing out that Well, Jesus made it very clear, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to God but through me. So if that is what he said, and this is how he described himself, whatever would contradict that would be a different Jesus and therefore not the only way.
2: Which again, is reasonable, is logical, is sound, but will still be thrown out of hand with people who are immersed in that kind of propaganda. So when it comes to witnessing to that kind of person, it's like witnessing to everyone else first of all don't do it for results because likely you won't see them secondly understand language matters when you say something make sure that you understand what it is and that they understand what it is that you mean as well and most importantly be ready for a long haul the best way to show a difference, especially in this kind of personality, isn't the difference between their perception of God and your perception of God. They aren't going to care. But what they are going to notice is the difference, the impact their version of God has had on their life and the difference that God has made on your life. Live out the Christian faith and let them ask questions. Understand it is a long journey, but a worthwhile one. And don't take responsibility when this is ultimately the Holy Spirit's job anyway. Remember First mm. 1 Corinthians 12.3.
0: Very well said and also very, very true that sometimes the truth without relationship is just that, the truth. And it's sometimes the relational long haul, as you described, can be more impactful on an individual uh, where they can see the results of your faith in your life as they've related to you versus just hearing the data.
2: Yeah, if truth was the answer to everything, this program would be all that the (laughs) church would need. But on the other hand, we uh, also Mm -hmm. note Aristotle did not have a point when he dismissed the need for the art.
0: Awesome.
2: Well, our next question is from Michael. He wants uh, to—he
0: asked, the Bible says—did I read that right? Yeah, Michael. Thank you, Michael. The Bible says in Philippians, to learn to be content. And uh, Michael's added single or married— how does a single man learn to be content from a biblical worldview? I know we are, we are to f- uh, find contentment in Christ, but does this also mean having a healthy community?
2: Okay, well, as the uh, qualified one in the room to address this, um, obviously referencing Philippians four eleven through thirteen, that doesn't mention singleness or marriage. If you want a passage that goes into that. 1 Corinthians 7 would be the place to start. But when it comes to how to find contentment, it would be the same way, you guys can probably speak from experience on this, to find contentment in marriage is the objective. When I'm in a single state or when I'm in a married state, why am I in that state? It's not uh, necessarily a matter of figuring out what I'm doing but why I'm doing it that separates the men from the boys. So if you're in a place in life where you're not comfortable and there's natural biological dispositions to be uncomfortable being single and married, by the way, you have to take into consideration that there's more going on than just an impulse, more going on than just a social standing and knowing where ultimately this is going to lead. I've talked to guys who've gone their whole lives as bachelors and no more regrets than I would have in my few short early years is one. And likewise, I'm sure you guys can say the time that you were bachelors was something that God did a work in in your life that is not inferior, but different than the one that you're serving in right now. The point being made is this. Where's Jesus when it ultimately becomes a question of why? If I'm going to be single, is it because he's the focus? He's sufficient for this status in life that my Motivation for getting up in the morning, a motivation for pursuing and even limiting my sort of intake for the sake of purity, my sort of perception of the opposite sex and the same sex and any other area either of struggle or of victory is ultimately coming down to and built on that one foundation. Is Jesus a part of it? And that was Paul's point in Philippians 4.11, in states of poverty and in states of plenty, in states of imprisonment and in states of freedom, I can do all things through Christ who's that far-off entity that will one day give me the satisfaction that I do not have in this life. No, that would be, I don't know what kind of translation, but it's wrong. Don't buy (laughs) it. It's who strengthens me. So there's a personal involvement. There is an objective purpose in that involvement. And it's not only to give you the strength, meaning the ability to see that thing through, but for an intended purpose, which is given to us, by the way, at the beginning of the same book, Philippians 1 and verse 7, I believe. He who began a good work, six, thank you, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And if you want to know more about what that goal is, read Romans 8. To be conformed to the image of his son, to reflect his characteristics and traits. Because, again, Michael, uh, bachelors, uh, us both, I assume, were both in a position that our Lord himself modeled during his earthly ministry. Likewise, when it comes to those who have the sort of marital relationships that we're not a part of, obviously, scripture itself directly says A, that's not a sin, B, that's an equal. Not an inferior, not a superior, but an equal ministry, and for what purpose? The same thing we're trying to do, just in a different way. If he's the focus, if he's the goal, and if he is the reason it's worthwhile, then I think you'll be doing just fine. If, on the other hand, all you can focus on is the fact that I don't have this, that's called covetousness, which isn't spoken of highly in Scripture. And if, on the other hand, you just say, you know, I'm in this single state, but just don't like it all that much. Peter, you've had some insights on this topic, not just from experience, but also um, that have been helpful to people in the past. Could you repeat some of those points for us?
1: Uh, How do you speak to the uh, single ready
2: to mingle, Christian?
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so it was a very good answer. I'm I'm just gonna back it up into a more broad spoke. So I think that Sean's answer is just perfect for someone who is single uh, in in a more generalized sense. Christianity has always struggled with the idea of if Jesus is all that we need, is it okay to have anything that we want? Or is that greed or corruption? So is it is it okay for me to be ambitious for a career? Is it okay for me to want a promotion? Is it okay for me to want more money? Is it okay for me to be a single person wanting to be married to somebody? Uh, the, these are various questions. So what Christians have determined is that wants in and of themselves are not bad and they don't necessarily contradict the need. But there are certain wants that are bad in and of themselves, right? So if you're if I'm married and I'm wanting another girl, now I've entered into sin. So it's not like just wanting something is good in and it of itself, but it's also not bad in and it of itself. It has to be measured and evaluated based on what the want is. But it's the same struggle that a single guy has when he wants someone who's not yet his wife. <clears throat> exactly. So what does it mean to want something? that you don't need, and that's the distinction between contentment and pleasure. So if I want something that I don't need, once I get it, I'm very grateful, it's very beautiful, I'm very thankful about it, but if I get something that I need, I'm not thankful at all, and when I'm denied it, I feel like I've been wronged. So good example is, let's say you find someone who's uh, starving to death, right, they're literally about to starve to death, and you make them a gourmet Steak, you get the the Kobe beef from wherever that's $200 and you grill it to perfection and you put the truffle oil on it and you marinate it just right and you give it to them. Are they going to appreciate that? Are they really going to be able to actually appreciate what you've given them? Or are they going to be like, just give me a Big Mac? You know, like this is taking too long, man. Just like make me something right now. I'm dying here. You know, They, they would not care about what, they wouldn't be able to appreciate the beauty of what you're giving them because they need it. They don't want it, they need it. People who need in this world can't appreciate the world. That's why uh, in our culture, as we're becoming more godless, we're becoming more entitled. Mm. And people are less and less happy because they're no longer wanting things, they're needing them. They don't want a relationship, they need it. They feel as if they don't have it, they have no meaning, they have no purpose, that their life is vacuous and empty. They don't just want a career, they need a career, which is why they're so picky about their careers and why th- whenever they get a career, they feel as though they've been robbed of something. They're like, man, it's not fulfilling me in the way that I thought. It's because you don't you don't want a career, you need it. It's something that is fundamental to you because you have nothing higher than your life that you're aiming yourself towards. Uh, Viktor Frankl, in his really excellent book, Man's Search for Meaning, mm. uh, he talks about his time in a, in a concentration camp and he said mm. there's the, the difference between the people who made it, right? the people who were able to endure the hell of the concentration camp and thrive were the people who had some sort of a meaning in their life that the concentration camp could not take away from them. They had some sort of an external transcendent meaning that met their needs. So therefore, as all their wants were taken away, they were hurt by them, they were devastated by them, but they weren't in despondency over them. They still had a will to live, because they had a meaning that satisfied their needs. This is what Paul means in First Timothy, where he says, with food and clothing, with these we shall be content, right? If you have your needs met, then you are content. That's all you need to be content. Anything that is added onto that then becomes a pleasure. Anything that's taken away from that becomes a detriment, right? If someone took away my food, I'm gonna die now, right? That's a detriment. It's, even, even then, though, Christians have been able to face death because their needs are still being met by a higher purpose within God. Mm. So that's a really important thing. And when we <clears throat> uh, can recognize, do I really have all my needs met in God, is when those, uh, those prosperous things in your life are threatened. Then you could really tell, am I really satisfied in God? Or do I need something else? Not just want something else, but do I need something else? So a great example would be the rich young ruler. He thought he had everything he needed in God. But then Jesus says, really? You have everything you need in God? Let's test that theory. Sell everything you got. Come follow me. You have treasure in heaven. And what does he do? He walks away despondent because he realizes even though he thought he was following the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, he wasn't right he had an idol in his life namely money money was not something he wanted it was something he needed right that's the heart of lust so there are things in your life though that predict what we would call happiness right so once you have contentment now you can start building on top of it and you could produce happiness and joy so the first step is seek to have your needs met in god seek to have your needs met in god pursue a relationship with god and seek for him to be the salvation and the fulfillment of all your meaning and all your purpose on top of that, which is a heavy thing to ask, but on top of that, there are things that uh, predict, I guess you call it, predict happiness. The first one is close, intimate relationships with people who genuinely love you. That's the big one. Close, intimate relationships with people who genuinely love you. That is true for the married and it's true for the single. If you are isolated and you're alone, the reason why despair is at an all-time high inside of our country <laughs> is because we isolated people for a year and a half or two years, however, whatever state you're living in. Um, but we isolated people for a couple of years, telling them that they couldn't go outside, and it's better to preserve your life than it is to be happy. And, uh, well, apparently that wasn't true because many people have died through drug overdoses and various suicide attempts because they were so despondent. You can deal with a lo- without a lot of things. You cannot deal without relationships. You need mm-hmm. love within your life. You need community within your life. God, when you looked at Adam, he says it's not good for man to be alone. He's not saying... Uh, Specifically, it's not good for man to be unmarried. He's saying it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for for man to be outside of a community. We're made in the image and likeness of God. God is a community. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't believe in a Unitarian God. If you're made in his image, you need a community. You need like-minded individuals that come alongside you, support you, and encourage you. If you feel despair and depression within your life, my question for you is, are you investing in your church community? Are you involved in the church? Do you have people there that know you, that love you, that care for you? And are you seeking that out? Is that a priority within your life? The next thing is that people need to feel like they have competency within their life. They need to feel like they're doing something that matters. So career is actually a very important thing, especially for men. Women as well, but men more so. Career is very, very important to you. You need to feel like you have some sort of a competi- competency within your life, something you're skilled at, something you're good at, something that you, uh, you're you contributing, you feel like you're contributing. One of the reasons why, especially kids of my age, parents couldn't <clears throat> figure out why they were so unhappy, because they're like, well, we're doing everything for them. That's why they're unhappy, mm-hmm. right? Kids are made unhappy when they feel like they have no purpose. And when you extend the period of adolescence, where you're like, just get an education, don't work, Don't do anything. We'll take care of all your needs. That actually makes people miserable, especially young men, right? It emasculates them. It effeminizes them, and it makes them feel like they have no purpose and meaning. It brings about despair and aimlessness. Build up competency with your life. Seek something that you're good at, something that God has placed within you that blesses you and blesses your community. That's very good. Uh, I'll just mention one more. Seek something not just that you're good at and that will you know, obviously build up your finances, but seek something that you enjoy doing. Like hobbies are very good, right? Having some sort of a hobby that gets you out of yourself, that you enjoy, reading books, baking, woodworking, construction, uh, making models, right? Something that you enjoy that for its own sake. right? Again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, if everything becomes like a utilitarian pursuit, It will make you miserable. You need to have stuff in your life that you do simply because you enjoy doing it. Cultivate hobbies within your life. That will really help. There's much more I could say, but that's, uh, we're out of time basically.
0: (laughs) Reminds me of that uh, missionary story where they talk about how it's very important that you don't interfere with the culture, that, you know, try to not westernize people, but to just share Christ with them. It's very difficult. I remember hearing this story, and I don't even know if it was absolutely true, but missionaries showed up and go, oh, you guys are using these axes that are so inadequate. Here, why don't we use these axes? These are the ones that we brought with us. They're so much better. And all of a sudden there was this huge depression and even suicide increases in men. Hmm. Well, one of the prides of that culture was making your own axe, hmm. being able to rise up, build your own axe, and that is sort of like who you are and you're, hmm. you're a part of your identity. And by just saying, "Oh, you don't need that thing." Here, use this one this of the. This is better, this, way <laughs> better. <laughs> they were like, so this one "I bought it at Walmart. Was yeah. me. <laughs> I put my life
1: into this. I bought this at Walmart for ten bucks. Here you go. You know, uh, yeah, that would devastate someone."
0: Mm-hmm. Well, if you want to join a Christian community, um, we're here, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, uh, right here in Tucson, Arizona. We'd encourage you to join us. We worship on Sundays. Uh, all <laughs> we have a eight thirty nine or eight eight. 30. Eight, nine, 30, and eleven. Yeah, eight, nine, 30, and eleven. <laughs> so, Six thirty on Wednesdays. We also have a potluck tomorrow. We're trying to yeah, get, yeah. Get come community. to the potluck tomorrow uh, on Saturday. On yeah, Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. We'll see you same place, same time next week. God bless you. You've been listening to a reason for hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you.